Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars and policymakers from all fields on urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the history of pandemics, both in terms of historical pandemics in the past, uh, like plagues or influenza, and the ways in which our thinking about the disease and pandemics has really changed over the past centuries and years. Uh, I'm very happy to welcome Dr. Murrow Eisenberg to uh, joining me remotely uh, today. He is a postdoctoral fellow at the National Socio-Environmental Synthesis Center and a PhD graduate from Princeton's history department. He is a late antique uh, medieval and environmental historian, and his research projects range from analyzing how rulers issued laws to build frameworks for the states to case studies of how climate change has affected pre-modern localities. And his most recent project is titled uh, the Making of a Pandemic, Plague, Environment, and the End of Antiquity. It examines the outbreak of the first great socio-ecological disaster in the recorded human history, which is the first bubonic plague pandemic, commonly known as the Justianic Plague around the 6th to 8th century CE. So uh, we'll try to break down some very interesting questions, uh, both from historical pandemics and to today's media responses and our current understanding of science. So uh, thanks so much for joining me remotely, uh, Dr. Eisenberg. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. Uh, and I forgot to mention the bio that you also host a podcast yourself, Infectious Historian. You, you actually just started a couple of weeks ago, right? Yeah, I do it with my collaborator and colleague, Lee Mordecai, who's a professor at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, but is also a Princeton postdoc or a Princeton graduate, excuse me. Um, and we're both affiliated with what's called the Climate Change and History Research Initiative at Princeton. Um, so we do a lot both at Princeton and we're, uh, at the moment, uh, there's six seminars we've put on or are in the process of putting on uh, virtually at Princeton on pre-modern pandemics. Got it. Uh, and you just started this very recently, I, I, I guess very much because you yourself uh, are an expert of the history of disease and medicine and environmental history. So uh, you really thought that uh, history of pandemics could really inform us in terms of how we see this current pandemics, even though the science technology may have changed in drastic ways. Yeah, I think that's right. I think what we've seen throughout all of various types of media is um, people groping and reaching for past pandemics as examples uh, to follow today. Um, and so what we wanted to do was is bring on experts. Um, we work on one pandemic, but we know people who work on others. Um, and to bring on experts of pandemics and diseases to discuss what they know um, so we can have a more in-depth conversation rather than just, you know, a quick comparison between one pandemic and another. It's really interesting because you you just brought up the, the virtual seminars that you do with Princeton community. And the, the way I found out about your work is also through that. And uh, you, you wrote a recent article in Washington Post and also talked about this in your seminar that uh, a lot of people today uh, use those kind of predetermined cultural scripts based on past pandemics to talk about pandemics today. Uh, would you mind just telling us a little bit more about that idea and, and we can take it from there? Yeah, sure. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of the times when we think about pandemics, we have uh, a couple of uh, set ones in our minds, right? Whether or not we think we know what they do, we just kind of have them in the back of our brains. And I think the the most famous one, probably the most famous pandemic in recorded human history, at least, uh, is the Black Death, which takes place during 
the middle of the 14th century. This starts uh, somewhere in Central Asia uh, and spreads and probably decimates and devastates populations throughout Central Asia and Eurasia. The new evidence seems to suggest spreads throughout the Middle East and Europe, um, killing, you know, depending on where, but at least uh, 30%, but sometimes upwards of 70% of the population in various places. And I think what we've in some ways been uh, so into is is that pandemic for obvious and very good reasons that it's shaped a lot of the ways in which we think about other pandemics, right? That one, uh, as a recent webinar called it, the mother of all pandemics, um, you know, has shaped how we think about other ones. And I think what we made the point in that op-ed was, is we have to think about each one in its own context, in its own case, with its own uh, implications and its own effects. So why don't we just zoom in a little bit further in that idea? So uh, have you seen any prominent examples of how policymakers or journalists and et cetera, uh, that kind of falling victim to this fallacy as they address uh, the, this current COVID-19 crisis in false comparisons with previous compa- uh, pandemics? Yeah, I would say they're not necessarily false, but they're just people having lessons they want for today and policy implications they want changed now, and then reaching to past examples and saying, see, it was like this in the past, it's like this in the present, right? So the most famous example, it's, it's a cottage industry, right? I'm uh, somewhat active on medieval Twitter, uh, which is a thing. Um, and what's pretty clear is almost every day, someone publishes an article that says, Either this pandemic is good or this pandemic is bad because like the Black Death, it ended or may end feudalism, right? I mean, I think that the first round of hot takes on it was that feudalism ended in the 14th century, thus this pandemic will somehow end economic inequality. I think that set of hot takes in the last two, three weeks has given rise to another set of hot takes, which is, oh, that doesn't actually seem to be happening. Actually, the large corporations <laughs> seem to be uh, gathering more money and profiting over this, right? Billionaires are now even richer yeah. at the moment. And so now all the op-eds are, well, this is going to lead to a new feudal society, right? Um, that's the new take on, on a lot of these, again, gross comparisons. And I'm happy to talk about why those comparisons are wrong, but that's kind of how it's used. So, so let's uh, talk about why they are wrong. So what are some of the unique aspects, I suppose, of this current coronavirus crisis that should give us a pause before making those historical leaps and analogies related to it? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good question. And I think that's what makes a lot of the historical analogies quite difficult. Um, I mean, the number one thing that seems to be different at the moment, and God willing, it stays this way, is the the how many people are dying is much lower than past pandemics, right? I mean, the fact that we've had 101,000 people in America die is awful. It's literally tragic. And at this point, people running the government don't even seem to care anymore, but that's for another discussion. Um, but that is quite different than, as I say, the Black Death in which 50% of the people die, right? Or even the 1918 influenza pandemic, which is the one everyone likes to throw out. Um, you know, that caused tens and tens of millions of deaths around the world, including, uh, you know, at least half a million people in the United States. So you're seeing orders of magnitude difference. What you do see, I think that is slightly different is what I've come to think of as an inverse reaction or an inverse uh, implications, perhaps, or inverse effects, maybe is the best way to think about it. And again, you, you would have to test this um, you know, through data use and research. But 
you know, it's a very different world in the 14th century Black Death when 80 to 85 or maybe even 90% of people are peasants working the land, right? That's a very different economic society than, you know, 2020 America or 2020 global world when almost no one's working the land and in America, most of it is run by a service industry um, to some extent or, you know, uh, white collar professionals, those types of things. And so it's even very different than 1918. And that's where that kind of also fails in some respects, because again, the way in which society is organized, both economically, socially, and culturally is extremely different 100 years ago than it is now. So in that sense, it, it becomes less accurate to draw those big leaps, just as you said, you know, the the because the coronavirus because the black death ended uh the, the feudal society in, in such a way therefore coronavirus has the potential to eliminate or increase inequalities but it, but it seems to me that the cultural script could fit either way you anyone can find some kind of narrative that that fits into this is does that hold true in the sense that you can always find an angle to find some historical comparison and, and i suppose people could do that for all kinds of historical examples yeah, I think, I mean, if you if you want to go searching history for proof of what you're trying to do in the present, I think you'll find it, right? I mean, it's not that hard. There's thousands of years of recorded history, and that can certainly be done. Um, what I think it does do is it, it, it flattens a lot of the things that did happen during those time periods, right? So there were site-specific and locality-specific uh, repercussions and examples and differences across time and space during every pandemic that when you just draw these simple uh, end of feudalism comparisons, you're not really doing justice to differences in England or France or Spain or Italy. I mean, and you could obviously drill down even farther city by city, region by region. Um, but by doing that, what you've basically done is just erased what the kind of the complexity of history is going to offer you, which are different examples and ways in which people reacted. So how helpful are those historical comparisons in general? I mean, uh, you asked me before the interview what I study. I mean, I study economics, and there are so many economists today. There's, there's just an endless stream of working papers uh, that try to say, oh, what happened in the 1918 uh, you know, influenza? What happened back in the de Black Death? What were uh, the policy enacted back then? And what were the economic impacts of uh, non-pharmaceutical in interventions? And uh, we've interviewed economists on, on such matters, and it seems to us that uh, they could often shed light on some important issues today. But uh, it, it sounds like sometimes those analyses might not be as accurate as we hoped them to be. Yeah, I mean, there's a few reasons for that. One is a data question, right? I mean, the farther back you go in time, the worse your data is. I mean, there's problems with our COVID-19 reporting data, right? I mean, we're underreporting deaths. That seems pretty clear. So it's not as if data is ever neutral by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but certainly the farther back you go in the past, the less data you're going to have. So how are you going to run all your regression analyses on essentially bad data, right? That's one problem. Um, you also have uh, problems of, you know, uh, what people in those time periods were focused on, right? I mean, were they focused on economics above all else, right? I mean, that's in some ways what this crisis has shown or this pandemic has shown is our, in many ways, at least in America, laser-like focus on economics above everything else, right? I mean, we're focused more on economics than we are about reducing deaths almost at this point. Um, which to me is the wrong way to approach it. Um, so, you know, each time period is shaped by what it cares about and what it thinks is important. And economics as a central driving thing in American life is certainly not a century old, right? It's maybe a half century old or so or a little more, but so that you're going to have people just thinking completely differently. 
I suppose when we talk about cultural scripts, uh, do you think are they more inherently built into just humans' way of thinking about those matters, such as uh, our tendency to draw historical analogies, or is it more sort of influenced by a top-down approach by uh, you know, quote unquote, the media or news outlets or journalists uh, who, who try or scholars even who try to make those uh, overleaping judgments uh, that might not be accurate. Uh, what do you think is actually the cause of this? So I think causal is always going to be difficult for anyone. To <laughs> I think if you ask if a historian tells you they know the cause of something, they probably don't actually know the cause <laughs> of something. Uh, you know, with a couple couple exceptions, there are obviously exceptions in there, um, but you know, giant changes. The cultural skips point is an interesting idea, um, but what it really is getting back to is this: you know, the the tendency of historians to talk about two things, which is what we call structure and agency. Right. So structures are the things around us. Um, you know, we're born into a set of circumstances. You were born into one set of circumstances. I was born into another. We share some because we both have been at Princeton, I think about the same time. Right. I mean, different ages. So there's obviously differences, but that's going to structure our lives and how we think about the world and our ideas about it um, and really boundary what we think is even possible. But within that, you do have agency to make choice. Right. There are contingent factors that will then shape how people live both within that. Um, so if you want to use an example, right, uh, 1918, people knew that they shouldn't really be holding victory parades, right? Because when you have a bunch of people massed together, as we know today, that spreads influenza just as spreads COVID-19. But say, you know, the famous example is Philadelphia decided to have a bunch of war bond parades. And so it spread the, spread the influenza and more people got sick and died than in other cities such as St. Louis or, you know, other cities that we have good data on. Um, so what you really see is everyone's working within the same structure, but the contingent choices they make are really going to shape how they're doing it. And in that example, it also shows you how structures are different, right? In the sense of people place so much uh, emphasis on uh, World War One and raising money for World War One that that overrode public health concerns. So the lesson that we should really take away here is that it's not that there are no helpful historical comparisons that can be drawn. Uh, there's still helpful things that we can learn from. It's just you have to develop a more nuanced perspective in terms of uh, what are the local situation? What is the actual the structure and the agency being involved at the time? Yeah, I think that's right. And I also think the other thing to keep in mind is even if you know those lessons, are people even going to pay attention to you, right? I mean, that's that's the old question with historical things, right? I mean, uh, we know, I think, from influenza, from other flu outbreaks of the 20th century, that if you keep people more isolated from each other, you will reduce the spread. But what we've chosen to do, right, a lot of states have already chosen to significantly open up their economies because they've made the choice, even though they know both the data and the history is against them, is they've decided that the economics are more important, right, which tells you something about how society structures its own thought. So uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed uh, Princeton's Dr. Melissa Reynolds, who also wrote this op-ed in Washington Post in March, and she was uh, focusing, she's also a historian who uh, compared the coronavirus epidemic out to outbreaks of the sweat in the 15th century Europe, and 
she was saying that despite the obvious advances in te technology, uh, there were striking similarities between communication strategies and also namely cultural scripts in, in the way that uh, we, we think about those things. Like, for example, uh, today, the federal government is also kind of failing to telling people to, to take appropriate measures a couple, couple months ago before the outbreak really took place to such a massive scale. And that's kind of the same communications failures that we saw centuries ago. So, uh, and, and you and I were just talking about uh, structure and agency and, and how there might be uh, inherent structures to a society that have remained unchanged for centuries. So do you think that plays a factor in the sense that there are uh, the way human uh, societies are being organized that are so inherently deep uh, into the organization of society that, uh, that, that, that contribute to such uh, failures to come up with the right communication strategy or the right uh, comparisons or the right analyses? Yeah, no, that's a good question, right? This is the, the old question of does biology drive uh, human history and human actions? And to some extent, right, I mean, there is that is in within how we think and how we act. But I mean, I, I think uh, Melissa's comparison was actually quite good, but it's also interesting, right? Once you start adding in more factors, you realize that actually it doesn't have to be that way, right? I mean, South Korea famously, you know, basically locked down very quickly um, to some extent. And then now since then, they've basically had really good contact tracing among other techniques, right? You see broad comparisons, you know, say France versus the UK or Italy versus uh, Spain or Italy versus Germany, right? There's multiple ways in which people have reacted to this. So I don't think it's necessarily innate in terms of our communications abilities. I think there's different possibilities of how we could go. And at least in the United States, the people leading the response, which ultimately does come from the top of the federal government, has been so bad at communicating and basically so incompetent at responding uh, that that's going to shape our response. But again, if you went to Germany, right, which is a a federalized system, just like the United States. I mean, it's set up like the United States post-World War II. They reacted in very, very, very different ways. Now, it doesn't make them perfect by any means, but it makes them very different. Since we're here to talk about the history of pandemics, after all, I thought maybe we can go a little bit deeper on one of the very interesting pandemics, uh, which is the Justianic Plague. Uh, I am quoting right now from your most recent journal article, Lessons from the Past, Policies for the Future, Resilience and Sustainability in Past Crises, uh, in, in which you actually wrote about the Justianic Plague. And this might be a slightly longer intro for our uh, listeners, but I think it's very helpful to provide the context. So basically, uh, by the year 500 CE, the Western Roman Empire had disappeared as a cohesive political state across Western Europe. But Eastern European Empire, Eastern Ro Roman Empire simultaneously flourished. Uh, the Western half had divided into successor barbarian kingdoms, while the Eastern Roman Empire was actually centered around the Balkans, uh, Anatolia, uh, which is modern day Turkey and the Middle East. And one of its main initiatives was the reconquest of the formerly Roman regions in the West, such as North Africa and Italy. Uh, and that initiative has also begun quite quickly as well. Uh, with very quick and cheap conquests for the East Roman Empire. Uh, at the height of this reconquest in the early 540s, uh, the Justianic Plague erupted across the Mediterranean world and Europe. Uh, and, and the plague was basically a pandemic uh, that remained active for over two centuries, uh, from 541 to 750 CE. And its impact on the Eurasian population has been suggested as you know significant, causing deaths of tens of millions, 
uh, well, its effect on human behavior from economics to culture and religion have also been described as pivotal. And some have even described it as the watershed moment separating a flourishing ancient world from the darker medieval world. Uh, so maybe we could start with the Justianic plague. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about that plague? Some of the interesting findings that you actually discovered uh, in contrary to traditional wisdom uh, and also what it could tell us about uh, today's COVID-19 crisis. Yeah, so I can answer the unique and attracting my attention. I'm a historian of, of late antiquity and the early Middle Ages, and the Justinianic plague happens during late antiquity and the early Middle Ages. How you divide up time is kind of made up, so I do both. Um, so that's why I got into that plague outbreak in particular, right? It is within my narrow field fairly well known, again, but not in the broader context of history. Right? It's not as well known as the Black Death. I'll fully admit that. The usual story you get of the Justinianic plague is that it breaks out in 541 in Egypt. Uh, it spreads pretty quickly to Constantinople, which is now Istanbul today. It's the capital of the Roman Empire at the time. And then from there, it spreads across the rest of the Mediterranean world. If you read textbooks on this, you'll see the death rate was very similar to the Black Death, say 50% of the known world, um, and that it somehow caused economic, social, and cultural crises that essentially ended the ancient world and began the Middle Ages. That's how it's always been done, or usually been done, I should say. What we did is we wrote a couple of articles, and we have a, actually more than a couple, um, about the topic. One uh, qualitative, we might say, for historians in a, in a historical uh, publication called Past and Present, and one for scientists um, in what's called the Proceeding of the National Academy of Sciences, which is a fairly well-known science journal, um, which was quantitative. And so with each one, which they complement each other quite well, we use the different techniques of uh, historians in one and maybe more quantitative evidence in the other to arrive at a conclusion to go through all the evidence again, because you can do that, um, to basically make the case that in fact it doesn't cause all of these economic, social, um, and political changes. And that in, while you may have some significant loss of life, saying 50% is just untenable because you just don't have the data to back that up. Uh, would you mind just telling us a little bit more about your research there? Because you mentioned uh, that re-examining the history of the Justinianic plague emphasizes the importance of analysis that considers local changes in economy, religion, agriculture. And we kind of touched on this already, in, in, that, that local contexts really do matter when it comes to shaping epidemics. Yeah, so there's a really famous source that discusses the outbreak in Constantinople in those first couple of years by a guy named Procopius of Caesarea. Um, he's probably the most famous 6th century historical writer, um, for not for his plague work, but for a series of books he writes on what are called the Wars of Justinian, who's the emperor at the time, and that's the, the plague is named after. And so if you read his account, which is you know short within the whole thing, but fairly vivid, you get a description of uh, a plague outbreak in Constantinople that's certainly significant. Um, they have problems burying bodies, for example. People are hiding in their houses. It's another great example. Um, and it lasts for several months. And so it seems to be quite significant. Now, the problems are, the, he gives us numbers. He says first 5,000 people died a day, then 10,000 people died a day. If you just do some back-of-the-envelope math, he says the last three months, you get 675,000 people dying 
and the city itself was probably only 500,000 people. So you can't really use his numbers at all, right? So you just have to basically toss them out. Um, and my colleague, Lee Mordecai, and uh, one of my other colleagues here is a postdoc at Sysync, uh, Lauren White, have written a wonderful uh, paper using disease modeling to model all the different potential ways in which this might have spread. And they basically show that not only the numbers not work, but lasting three months can't possibly work, right? Every piece of this as a verifiable fact just doesn't work scientifically from what we know about a bubonic plague or and pneumonic plague, which are two separate things. Um, so what we basically went through is we showed that demographically these numbers just don't hold up. But what people do is they take Procopius and they have this vivid account and they just stick it everywhere else that there is an outbreak of anything that may look like plague. And so what we go back through is we go back to the source that says, you know, it might literally say in one line, a great pestilence broke out in Italy, Spain, and North Africa, right? And that's your evidence then for massive plague die-off across all of those entire countries, which is obviously problematic once you start poking at the evidence. So what could that plague inform us about today's coronavirus crisis, whether it's response or whether it's state capacity or the resilience of uh, government? Yeah, I think that's a good question. One thing that was pretty clear is actually they were quite adaptable, I think, in certainly the short-term uh, outcomes, right? I mean, I think there was a significant mortality in the city of Constantinople, right? People are like all urban locations throughout history. People are packed together. So the the, the death rate there was probably much higher than, say, a small village. You know, I, we don't know, but that would be my guess. But what we can see pretty clearly in the evidence is that actually the empire was able to adjust itself pretty quickly. So famously, they couldn't body, uh, they couldn't bury bodies, excuse me, um, very easily. And so he appointed a particular administrative official as an ad hoc thing to be in charge of burying the bodies, gave him some money to do that, right? So they took care of what was, you know, the most pressing, what we call the most pressing ur urban public health crisis in terms of burial. Um, so they did stuff like that. Um, you also can see uh, in terms of economic supply lines that from what we can gather, and again, the data is very spotty here, so I'll say that up front, the, uh, the supply lines to the city of Constantinople, which required large amounts of food because it's a large city, seem to be restored uh, in pretty much the same shape within about five or six years, right? So that places were able to adapt uh, fairly, fairly well and relatively I don't want to say easily, but better than, than we might expect in a pre-modern state. So in that uh, journal article that I just mentioned, uh, Lessons from the Past, Policies for the Future Resilience, Sustainability in Past Crises, uh, for the Justinianic Plague part, you also wrote that uh, yet if we examine particular outbreaks, uh, even the destructive demographic narratives demonstrate the ability of the Eastern Roman state to react both immediately to the increased number of deaths, maintain vital administrative efforts and combines long-term political goals. Uh, and that's on the state level. And on the individual level, you wrote that in total, the Romans understood that the plague was an unexpected new phenomenon and adapted accordingly by trying to mitigate its spread. And despite the limited information at their disposal, communities and individuals attempted to weather the storm using what, whatever means uh, were at their dis disposal. So it seems that, you know, from the top level, uh, the government was really effective in organizing its citizens and organizing its uh, administrative efforts. And, and from a individual level, uh, people really had a um, appropriate response. Um, so, so would you mind just telling us a little bit more about, I guess, the, the concept of resilience of state uh, and how uh, the top and the bottoms kind of interact with each other, especially when it comes to pandemics as such? 
Sure. So, I mean, one thing, right, to keep in mind, any state reaction, which I guess we should have mentioned up front, is there's no public health, really, as we would think about it, right? There's some debates about that. But as we think about it as 20th century, 21st century people, there is no public health. And it's not until the turn of the 20th century, a little earlier, um, that we have, obviously, bacteriological ideas, uh, laboratory science, right? All the modern things that we can identify that the bacillus that causes plague is what we now call Yersinia pestis. Um, so we don't, or they didn't know, I should say, what was killing them, right? I mean, so they had no way of, of, of really fighting it, for lack of a better term. There were two things that people seem to do, the evidence gives us from a, from a bottom-up perspective. The one is, in some examples, we do have people who, um, you know, lock themselves in their homes, right? That they basically uh, isolate themselves so that's the way they can stop it from spreading. Now, this is a little different than today, right? Today, COVID-19 is spread. It seems the newest research I've seen is basically indoors without a mask on is about the worst you can get standing close to someone, right? The, uh, you know, with, with some caveats, but essentially that's that's the way it spreads, right? It's a person-to-person -person, uh, infection. The plague uh, spreads in various different ways, but the most common or probably the most common is bubonic plague, which are from... Uh, flea bites usually can be other ectoparasites, um, but generally flea bites um, that get you. So they'll bite you in the leg and then you get a giant bubo in your groin. So that's how you get it. So locking yourself in your home might not actually prevent you from getting bubonic plague if there's fleas in your bed, right? So, I mean, that's, that's going to be a different situation, but that's how people isolate themselves. The second thing, which is, you know, we're seeing play out today. I mean, there's been a bunch of really good New York Times articles on this is, is if you had the means you left, right? I mean, we have whole cases in which uh, elites would leave. So one famous case in a later outbreak in the eighth century, um, the emperor famously fled Constantinople. Um, there's another example where apparently whole towns in Italy just like got up and left and ran up into the hills. Um, Again, we don't know if that that worked necessarily, <laughs> but but again, that's in some ways no different than what we've seen. You know, these people in in New York City, in New York City, or or you know, I saw a bunch of good ones. The first ones were about France, so I really like the ones where people were fleeing to chateaus in like southern France. That was my personal <laughs> favorite. Um, but that's from the bottom up how people were reacting. Yeah, I read that in your um, infectious historian podcast blog post as well as as plague returned again again. The rich came to focus on a single strategy, flight. <laughs> Those who could afford it abandoned cities infected with plague. And that's literally what we saw that, uh, as you said, the New York Times reporting that the rich people in Upper East Side New York basically all emptied out. Um, yeah, exactly. And I think one thing we're seeing in, in this pandemic that's that's very different than, say, the sixth century is, is I think our, and we've touched upon this already, but our marketization of everything is very different, right? Everything is about efficiency in the market and to make everything as 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 perfectly uh, efficient as we can do it, right? So, I mean, some of the early reporting, and now they've stopped reporting this, but I doubt it's completely changed, is you had people who are literally starving, right? So like food bank lines are really long, and you also have farmers destroying their crops because they don't have a way to bring their crops to a uh, individual market, right? It's been such an efficient market that, you know, people now have carrots. I can't know in the podcast, can see it, but right, you have like five pound carrots that are sold to supermarkets because they don't care what they look like, but they just need an efficient, larger carrot. <laughs> and so there's no way to package that for, 
safe. Not, I mean, it's perfectly safe, but for for local consumption. I mean, I saw some funny uh, Twitter posts that people were putting up about they ordered five pounds of potatoes and they got one potato, a five pound <laughs> potato, right? Because that's how it's made for a commercial setting. Um, right. And so that's a huge difference, right? I mean, in the sixth century, think. I mean, they want to make money, right? That's a big misnomer. They want to make money, but it, it does. You don't have an efficient market that's basically trying to solve all this at uh, all extremes. And the other thing to keep in mind is because they didn't have the engineering and technological ways of thinking and, and advancement, I guess we could say, they weren't able to always plan for things. So grain shipments, right, were assumed that there would be problems, whether it be famine or whether um, it be issues with uh, the flooding of the Nile, because most of the grain came from Egypt, or that there would be a storm in the Mediterranean that would destroy half your fleet, right? These are things they baked into the system because they simply knew that they couldn't control these things. And so we've basically managed to mitigate that risk to some extent, but it's obviously caused problems at the back end. You also wrote in that article that um, the short-term flexibility depended on systemic capabilities developed and maintained over centuries, which had long incorporated significant fluctuations to supplies of goods. And your article just really reminded me of the importance of state capacity, I suppose, because when I was studying political science at Princeton, this concept of state capacity is constantly brought forth to it. And, and uh, I suppose even in today's context, there's been so much debate regarding the efficacy of a democratic society versus an authoritarian regime, their ability uh, to effectively respond to a pandemic. And, and I would love to get your historical take on this issue. How do we uh, measure a state's general ability to respond to a pandemic? Uh, what is state capacity in that context? And, and or in other words, do we see a correlation in history uh, between a state's ability to organize its citizens through this top-down fashion and, and its effectiveness to respond to a pandemic? Yeah, I think this goes back to some of the points we talked about earlier, which is, you know, each state, just as we all, you and I live in our own structure and our own contingent choices, each state does as well, right? So Western, quote unquote, Western uh, countries, we'll say Western Europe and, you know, the United States broadly, have certain ways in which they approach public health that are similar, broadly speaking, again, this is in broad generalities. But everyone's going to react differently in terms of its own complexity, their own ideology, their system redundancy, right? These are big things um, that are going to change how we think about things by ideology, right? The United States clearly has much more of a free market ideology than, say, you know, France or Germany, right? And so we're going to build in, perhaps, I think we've seen that now, less redundancy into a system in which having extra ventilators, having N95 masks just sitting around, gather dust for most of the time when we don't need them, which is to say almost all the time, thankfully, uh, that those things are then going to be pushed aside in favor of you know making more money versus other ways, right? And so that's, that's what you're going to see a very big difference, even though these broad structures of the same, are the same. Now, in terms of, you know, authoritarian and democratic governments, right, that's going to create a binary as if these two things are the same. But as we've discussed, Germany, for example, is, is in many ways very similar, and they've approached this very, very differently than we have, both from a top-down perspective and from how people, honestly, from the bottom up are approaching it as well. 
so what are some of the other lessons that our listeners could generally take away from that study? Because in that study, you actually didn't just look at pandemics like, like the Justianic plague. You actually just look at uh, crises and existential risks to a given historical society in general, which is basically a risk that could trigger the collapse of a political or cultural system and, and how people really back then thought about and dealt with those risks. Uh, and, and you wrote very interesting about the Ottoman Empire from the 16th to early 17th century uh, that, that provided good limits to resilience in a pre-industrial society because uh, it, it really went through a series of droughts and shortages and famines during uh, the 16th century. So I would love to hear a little bit more of your thoughts on other historical takeaways from crises in general. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, states are even in the pre-modern world, they're very able, not very able, but if they are resilient and they put in enough systematic capacity, they're able to adapt to short-term changes, even significant ones that happen over several decades, right? I think you shift resources, you move things around. The famous case is one of my co-authors, the lead author on the paper, John Holden, who's a emeritus professor at Princeton, um, has a great case of 7th century Byzantium, which we did not put in the paper, um, where they lose two-thirds of their territory or three-fourths of their territory, right? But they manage to reorganize their society politically, ideologically, economically from the bottom up to really revamp the entire state. And this is what the Ottoman example was also pointing out as well, right? When you're hit by severe crises, you can figure out ways of shifting resources around, such as the state has that ability to maintain itself. Now, the downside to this, to some extent, is from these examples we used, and it's perhaps not surprising in a pre-modern world, is that elites tend to win out in these changes, right? Now, this isn't always true when you have violent revolutions, say the Russian Revolution or the French Revolution, that's going to be uh, counterexamples, right? You can always think, as I said, you can always think of counterexamples. But elites tend to be the ones who win out in these processes rather than, say, the average person, because they're the ones who are able to uh, buy into the various changes and shifts. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about other historical comparisons between the COVID-19 crisis compared to other historical uh, pandemics. Uh, what other similarities do you see in our contemporary pandemic response uh, with the past, whether it's quarantining or whether it's social distancing? Are, are there patterns that have maintained themselves throughout different centuries? Yeah, I think, so we touched upon some of these, right, that elite people run away, right? I mean, that seems to be a common thing. I haven't found a pandemic where that really hasn't happened, actually. Or, or that poor people suffer a lot. Or that poor that. people suffer, especially the longer and longer a pandemic goes on, right? I mean, that's the major change during the the Black Death, which continues to hit, um, the plague continues to hit Europe for centuries. And over time, what you see is that the poor lose out more and more to some extent. Now, again, economically, there are cases where that's not the case. But in terms of, you know, boarding up poor people in their houses, because they're the ones who get the plague, that seems to happen more and more, right, as you can identify them as the ones who are doing things. So that's certainly something that happens. I mean, one thing, you know, we, we could talk about is, is, you know, the idea that the pandemic should change history, that they have a big impact is actually a pretty recent idea, right? Really? That has a history in and of itself, right? I mean, that's part of the story of the 1918 pandemic is that, you know, it's talked about, you've probably seen it, that it's been forgotten, right? Well, it wasn't really forget forgotten, right? I mean, people, you didn't have, I don't know how many people lived at the time, but hundreds of millions of people suddenly having amnesia, 
but you do have a history of how you study pandemics and that in and of itself has a story that shapes many of these things. So just to go a little bit further on that point, are you saying that uh, only recently when we examine history, are we talking about this idea that pandemics have drastic impacts on the way history is being written? Not just the way it's written, but the way in which people think it affected people's lives. Right. I mean, that it has a major impact and that it's worthy of study is a very recent thing. I mean, I can give you the broad brushstrokes if you there's, I guess you could say two broad eras over the 20th century or three, really. We can do three. Um, the first is around 1900 and that period where you have the development of bacteriology um, and um uh, modern, what we call quote unquote, modern medicine, antibiotics, these types of things. That would be the first phase. Um, and those, that phase then eventually transitioned into a phase, which we might call the conquest phase. Um, Thomas Zimmer was recently on our podcast talking about public health over the middle of the 20th century. He studies the WHO, um, and malaria campaigns in particular. And during the post-World War II period to about 1970, 1980, really pushed to 1980, you had an idea in which people all working together could stop disease, right? You know, there's a famous book by a guy named Fabian Hurst called Conquest of Plague, right? And so his idea is, look, we stopped plague. Um, and it's not a, in some ways untrue um, because we came up with antibiotics, but stopped plague, although no one really knows why plague kind of has gone away. So that's the second phase. And then the third phase is the post-1980 phase, um, which starts with you know, various things, but is, is linked with the AIDS pandemic um, and followed by emerging infectious diseases um, in the late 80s. And it kind of, for lack of a better term, uh, explodes on the scene in the early 90s. Um, 1994, 1995 is really when it really begins. This is when you see the first emergence of, say, Ebola, um, in the public consciousness, it, it evolved, existed before that. You get the first books, uh, warning of you know the coming plague by Laurie Garrett, for example. And so that phase has really continued onward from 1994 essentially to the present. Right, that there's an idea that not only is some disease going to come, but it's inevitably going to kill us all, or many of us. There are three distinct phases, as you said, in, in the 20th century, from the 20s to the 60s to the early 2000s. Uh, we, we initially tried to understand it, then we tried to conquest it, and then now there's this notion of uh, prevention or greater understanding. Uh, would you mind just telling a little bit more about what you think, um, I suppose, led to those changes in our understanding? Was it more driven by scholarly actions in the sense that there were people who have come up with very distinct researchers that helped shape history or was it more of a mass movement that people uh, more people are caring about hygiene and more people are caring about uh, social distancing rules or whatever i suppose that goes back to the long time philosophical debate and historic studies whether it's individuals or massive uh, of people that actually shape history yeah i think you know my 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 friend Lee would say that it's all a feedback loop. That's his favorite phrase. Um, and I think that's very much true for the last phase, the, the post-1990s phase, right? You can see a feedback loop between the military, for example, the Defense Department, I guess I should say, but it's the military, um, say cultural ideas of it, whether it be through film or other forms of media, um, and uh, scholars as well, right? So people are writing about this because there's more money involved, right? A lot of the, there's been a lot of uh, ancient DNA work 
some which costs a lot of money on the Justinianic plague, for example, and that has um, a Defense Department funding, right? Because it's about if we can learn more about the plague in the past, then we can maybe stop it today. Now, whether you think the Defense Department wants to stop plague or weaponize it, we can have that debate elsewhere. Um, but it's definitely um, a larger context. So uh, to trace out, do you want me to trace out the three phases in more detail or? Would love to hear a little bit more in detail. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it, 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 I'm not the first one to point this out. I mean, I can give it to you to some extent, you know, plague maybe is the way I can do it because that's what I know very well, but you could do this for other diseases, presumably. Um, you could look at, say, the first uh, 10, 15 years of the 20th century, people started thinking about the Justinianic plague for the first time as a pandemic, right? And it's because they were focused on stopping the plague in their own present. And so when you're focused on stopping the plague in the present, you want to know about it in the past, right? What happened in the past? Then what ends up happening gradually from there is once they stop plague, they basically, this is all scientists, I should say, when I say they, they point out that um, they've conquered plague now. Look how much better we are than these ancient people, right? In the ancient past, it destroyed society. It destroyed the ancient world, brought down the great Greeks and Romans, um, and we're so much better than them because we stopped it, right? And then you get a new phase of research on disease, which starts in the, again, in the late seventies and it neatly lines up with those phases I've lined out where people make the point that actually disease has caused a lot of problems in history. Now, whether or not it causes massive political, economic, social, cultural change, as people say, for example, the Justinianic plague does, we can have a debate and I would suggest no, but that's where that tendency comes from. And there's good examples as well. You could look at the research done on the 1918 flu pandemic, and it's actually quite neatly lined up with those phases as well. Got it. That sounds like a fascinating tale that uh, not only merges with our previous discussion in terms of cultural script, but also just how uh, history is really being shaped and made. Uh, I was wondering, maybe we could talk about quarantine a little bit because you wrote this very lighthearted post on your blog about how people's newfound passion for baking and gardening uh, in, in times of self-isolation. And I was wondering if there's any historical pattern for people becoming more interested in self-sufficiency during pandemics, uh, especially due to fears of shortages or such. And, and do you think this really says anything deeper regarding our society today compared to uh, uh, historical ones in terms of our ability to react to upheavals such as those uh, pandemics? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the expert on quarantine is my uh, is our guest for a quarantine podcast. My, my friend and colleague Alex Chase Levinson is another Princeton PhD. You know, it's all Princeton PhDs, uh, <laughs> which is a Princeton podcast, so that's okay. Um, you know, one thing I haven't seen it in particular: uh, people becoming more obsessed. I mean, right, the famous comparison people are drawing these days are like the World War II victory gardens where people are growing food at home so that they can save food for the war effort. Uh, you know, I think what we're seeing that's quite different. I mean, part of the thing is in the late antique world, very few people are writing about very, what you and I would consider mundane things. Or I mean, you don't sit there generally and probably write in a diary or a blog post or whatever about how you got your food every day, right? It's just part of your baked in lived experience. So you're going to get fewer of those examples, which is not to say it's not there, but it's, it's harder to get it. But what's so different now, I think, are kind of two things. One are the the global supply chains we all depend upon, right? I mean, that's radically different than 
you know, even 20, 30 years ago, let alone a hundred years ago, right? I mean, you were probably, probably still are, right? We're all still buying tomatoes in the store. Well, those tomatoes are not grown, you know, in the Washington DC, Annapolis area, right? It's just not warm enough right now, right? My tomato plants, which I have two, uh, just went in, you know, three weeks ago. So you can't grow tomatoes right now. So what you have are global supply chains. And so people are trying to, you know, adapt to that because they think that there's going to be problems with the global supply chain. I think, um, I think most of those have pretty much been mitigated over the last, you know, after the first six to eight weeks of kind of insanity. Um, you know, you couldn't find, I couldn't find wipes for my kids' diapers, but that seems to now no longer be a case. And, and we need those carrots, you know, and we, need, and we need the carrots. And again, the supply chains have adjusted, I think, um, you know, and there's no longer a run on toilet paper. It seems right. I don't see any monstrous fights about toilet paper. Um, so I think that's one thing. Um, so that's why I think we're in a unique spot, right? Just in terms of how we organize our daily lives. But I also think it's another thing, which is also part of the change that's happening now, which is uh, we're, you know, most of the people who are doing this, most people I know, and I frankly admit this bias and this privilege are what we would call white collar professionals, right? Whether they're university educated, I'm almost entirely university educated. In my case, there are many, many academics again. I have, I go on medieval Twitter, so, you know, do what you want with that information, but it, but it's, it's white collar professionals who can work at home. Um, and most of the ones who are doing it, at least the cases that I know, um, they don't have kids, right? So there is a limit to how much work you're actually doing. I don't know what you do all day, right? But you're doing this podcast, you were doing some work, you went for your walk that probably filled up if you're being, you know, really, really going hard at it eight hours a day. <laughs> well, I was just talking to, to, to a friend that day because I feel bad for not having more women on the show, especially for our coronavirus coverage. But most female professors or scholars we reach out to, they say well, they have to take care of a family member or, or kids that have many other obligations or such that, that I felt like, uh, you know, right, rightly so what, what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. So I think in, in some ways, right, it's, it's you know, I, I you know, as you know, we're taping this during my kid's nap. I'm always happy to talk about my kid <laughs> on my own podcast. So I'll talk about it with someone else's. But, uh, you know, I have limited number of hours per day, right? So I have, right. you know, X number of hours, four or five to do work. And then I'm with my kids, right? I try to split my work with my wife as evenly as possible. I'm sure I fail at it. But that's at least what we try to do. So I think it's the baking and the and the planting comes from people who have never done these things before and usually were eating takeout food, to be very frank. And so they need something to do. And if they're not playing video games, right, they want to bake bread because they want to be healthy about it. At least that's for my pure anecdotal, my friends, most of whom don't have kids. And I look at them and I say, well, wow, <laughs> so I'm like, every day I get a new sourdough loaf from about four different people on my Instagram account. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and the idea that I would have time to bake a loaf of bread is, is pure insanity on my end. I would actually love to go, go a little bit deeper in, in terms of um, the issue of inequality because you actually did an episode on um, epidemics and inequality and we talked about how um, you know racially racial minorities or working class people are obviously disproportionately uh, affected in, in this uh, coronavirus crisis. And I suppose this debate about, you know, poor people suffering more, especially if the pandemic goes longer, is a very long one, as you were pointing out just a little bit earlier. Uh, would you mind just telling us a little bit more about, I suppose, uh, your, your thoughts on this issue? Because it seems to me that so much of the 
narrative today that you know we're all in this together kind of overlooks the real problems in the sense that I don't think we are actually in this together with a lot of the frontline workers because uh, there are just disproportionately more black people on the frontline working retail jobs that are more uh, likely to be harmed. So instead of posting ads that say, oh, we're all in this together, uh, maybe actually do something. So I don't know. It, it, It just seems that there is very distinct stratas in this society that we can see and we're not in this together. Yeah, I mean, I think that's another thing that makes this pandemic unique. Well, it's always existed to some extent, but it's it's more obvious, perhaps, and it's more um, bifurcated, yeah, bifurcated, but fractured, I would say, um, is you have a whole group of people, again, myself included, white collar professionals, who can sit on, you know, on their microphone and talk as we are during a Friday afternoon and we, this is work, right? I mean, you're a student, so this, presumably this counts to some extent for work for you. I mean, I think it does and it should if it isn't for you. Um, And for me, this is literally my work, right? I mean, I'm a postdoc. One of my things to do is to get publicity for the place I work and for my own work and that's what I'm doing. So I'm not on the clock or whatever. So what you really see here is, is a combination of structural racism in a fractured society, right? A fractured society in the sense that all of us, you know, we might say stuff like we're in this together, but we're all just doing our own thing and really don't care about anyone else around us, right? And that's not a new take on this. That's, you know, Dan Rogers wrote a great book called Age of Fracture, where he talks about this and how this has developed over the last 40, 50 years or so. Um, And, you know, it's an inability to recognize that the solutions to these problems, right? What are the solutions people put out? Well, you should wash your hands more, avoid public transit, uh, stay away from large groups of people, stay at home if you can, right? The key here is there's individuals, again, because of structural racism, people who are African-American, Latino, et cetera, who can't social distance, right? I mean, how can you social distance if you have, you know, multiple people in a small apartment? Uh, How can you... um, uh, how can you go to work if the system in which you live is not designed for you to own a car and you don't have the means to own a car, right? If it's designed, the only way you can get to work is by public transit. Well, you have to go somewhere, right? Are you going to work and are they providing you with masks, right? I mean, the clear case here is in most examples, no, right? I mean, the the meat packing plants or the meat processing plants, whatever they're called, why are they hotspots? Well, they're more, you can't social distance people on a meat line because you're trying to make too much money, right? So you're not allowing for inefficiencies in the system. And then you weren't providing protective gear to any of your workers. So lo and behold, they all got sick, right? I mean, that's pretty obvious. So how can you tell those people to separate and isolate? And then you don't give them masks, right? Do you have places for people to wash their hands when they get to work, right? Is the first thing you do when you get off a bus an ability to wash your hands. And I think the answer to that is no. Um, and so that's why you get these massive inequalities um, in, in this whole thing. It's an inability to both recognize the problems, right? Uh, not having somewhere to wash your hands. And it's also, frankly, uh, uh, not having an interest in finding a solution, right? I mean, if you say, go wash your hands, that's you saying, I don't care about the actual problems. I just want to push the burden onto you. And I think that's the message in that uh, podcast episode you did is that it's very difficult to balance those kind of broad, widely applicable advice that we expect everybody to follow 
with sensitivity to factors that have actually historically contributed uh, to injustices or, or racial inequalities that, that made certain communities more vulnerable to the infection. Yeah, I mean, the solution in many ways is, is quote unquote simple, right? I mean, in some ways we could all sketch it out, right? It's, it's those communities shaping the responses and what they need and telling the government what they need and the government responding in turn, right? I mean, that that's the and it's not simple, but that's that's the broad framework, right? That people who have less are able to shape uh, the reactions and to shape uh, what they need more than anyone else, right? So to provide them with more mass transit, if you're not going to pay them more, so they can buy their own means of, pub, of 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 transportation, right? And when you give them mass transit, you put in the infrastructure to make it so that it's safe, right? But we have no interest in building up mass transit infrastructure, let alone making it safer for them on it, right? I mean, that seems pretty clear. So that that's the problem at the end of the day. Uh, what do you think has really contributed to this kind of pervasiveness of uh, pandemic-related inequalities, especially in the context of the United States, and also uh, what contributed to many politicians' unwillingness to really find those interesting solutions uh, from a historical perspective? Is there anything unique about uh, the U.S. or how it has historically dealt with diseases that could really shine light on this issue? That's a much longer question for someone who's uh, probably a modern uh, sociologist, so that's who I would have on <laughs> if I was you. But I mean, as, as a historical take on it, um, you know, it has to do with how, as I said, American society is structured, right? It's always had very racist uh, structural uh, existence in many ways, and we haven't addressed those, right? We've just papered them over and in fact, made them worse in many cases, right? You could look at what's happening today and yesterday and the last few days in, in Minneapolis, right, is is pretty obvious, right? I mean, I think, at least as far as I can tell, anyone who's seen the video says the officers should be arrested, right? I mean, that seems pretty clear. But the fact that they haven't um, has led to protests and then led to, you know, uh, further violent protests. And in some ways, you know, you're living in the midst of a pandemic in which there's at least 20, 25% unemployment, I would assume probably higher in those communities because, you know, there's inequality un baked into them. Um, and so you're going to have a situation in which things are going to, you know, just get worse. Um, and that's, uh, among other things, what's happened. And again, you can see this, right? And we all know it, right? They arrested a CNN uh, uh, television crew this morning and they had it on film. Right. And they clearly arrested the guy because he was, I think he identifies as African-American and Latino, if I remember correctly. Right. I mean, he was doing nothing. You can literally see it on video. So, you know, a lot of these are, are as I say, baked into the society itself. And so quickly going back to the quarantine episode you did with uh, Alex Chase Levinson uh, and, and you guys all mentioned this idea that uh, the debate we're having right now about uh, freedom versus constraint in, in the time of epidemic disease is a very old one. And in the end, what really made the difference for ending universal quarantine was a sense that the plague was really disappearing from major port cities of the Middle East or whatever. And that really suggests that the current debates and conflicting impulses that we are grappling with now uh, will not really be settled until a a, a sort of a uh, cough in the grocery store no longer gives people fear where the, uh, coronavirus cases really drop significantly. So I suppose this is more of a, I would love to get your take on, on how you see things shape up or public perception shape up in the coming weeks or months. Do, do you think uh, we will really not go back to normal unless uh, everybody feels truly safe? 
Yeah, I mean, so there's a few things to unpack there. The the short answer is yes, until people feel safe that they want to go to the grocery store again, that seems pretty clear. You know, opening up is a is basically become to me a ridiculous phrase. And you know, what is it, you know, again, I have children, right? I know a lot of other people who have children. What is it what does it do for you if you open up stores in the economy if I have nowhere for my children to go? Right. If there are no schools open and no camps open, it doesn't matter if you open up. Right. I magically can't leave my house anymore. I mean, I guess I could go to the store and bring the store, although I probably still won't do that because I won't feel that that's safe. But opening up is irrelevant if you have nowhere to go. And that's only exacerbated again in communities that have uh, less me or, you know, less money, fewer means to do all these things. You know, What's the point in some senses of what we've done if we've self if we've self-isolated, if we haven't actually gotten to testing on demand, right? If we didn't pour money into universities and schools, frankly, which are even more important, they don't right now have a better chance of safe teaching, right? I mean, this is this is the conundrum that that Princeton and every other university is basically going through, right? They're all hemming and hawing and basically putting off the decision over whether or not people are going to go back as long as possible because, <laughs> they haven't done anything and nothing's really changed. So how can we actually ever go back to school? Well, we're joking that Princeton is just waiting to see what Harvard does and just follows Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that, but that's how the closing played out too. I mean, you know, I was heartened to see, I mean, it was, I said this to, to someone at the beginning, it was very heartening. Seeing, I mean, who was the, the first, you know, the first sporting event canceled that I remember seeing? Do you remember? It, it, was, it was the Ivy League basketball tournament. That's at least what I remember. And I'm not saying it was, but it probably were other things. But that was like the first thing I saw like broadly announced. And then everyone else killed it after that. Now, they can announce it first because they make no money on the Ivy League tournament, right? It's a completely faux (laughs) thing created like three years ago. (laughs) But, you know... Look, I mean, I'm friends on the basketball team who are going to be very happy to hear you say this. Look, I, I, you know, I, you know, my wife, my wife went to UConn. We are huge women's uh, college basketball fans because she went to UConn. We probably went to, I don't know, I was at Princeton for too long. I won't tell you. I was at Princeton for seven years, all told. And we probably went to, I don't know, 30, 40, maybe even 50 basketball games. Right. Plus like another 10 football games. Like we were probably like the biggest graduate student supporters of sports that existed. Amazing. <laughs> that's how I, I, that's my claim to fame. It's probably not true. But, <laughs> um, but, you know, that was the first tournament canceled because, again, there's just less money involved. Um, so that that's one thing. I mean, I say that's why the opening up conversation to me has just been a, a ridiculous conversation. I mean, I don't you know, I don't have that much hair left. So me getting a haircut is not a big deal. My wife, it's a bigger deal. But you know, what does that do for me if, if my kids are still going to be probably home with me till September? I mean, that's not going to change my my daily life. Nothing's going to change now. Um, but, but it sounds like it would take some actor that is very somehow privileged or does not really have skin in the game, you know, like the Ivy League basketball tournament or a rich institution like Harvard to really say, oh, let's do this. And then that sets a precedent and, and kicks it. It's it's a need. It's not just an institution or a person. It's it's a societal change that we need to decide that if we want to uh, be able to go back to some semblance of normality. And again, I want to unpack that in a second. Um, that the only way to do that is if we as a society decide we're going to pour massive resources into making that doable. 
right? I mean, at the end of the day, right, Princeton sits on a X billion dollar amount of money. And so they have some ability, whatever they're going to talk about with the endowment, to tap extra resources, right? But what is the local school? What is Mercer County Community College, which is a 15 minute down, ride down the road? What can they do, right? I mean, they barely have functioning class capacity as it, as it, as it exists, right? In terms of number of classes they need, how many people they're putting in a classroom. How is Mercer County Community College going to be able to do this when probably their budgets are being cut, right? I mean, they're having massive budget cuts from the state because the state's lost money, et cetera, et cetera. It's all just going down the line. But if you're not going to pour money into Mercer County Community College, then how are they ever going to open, right? How is the local elementary school right down the street uh, from the university going to open? Again, they'll be somewhat better because they do it on property taxes and Princeton's are a wealthy town, so they'll be a little better off. But you, you get the point, right? It's it's you need to basically be able to take care of everyone together, um, and that's you know that's the problem. This sounds really really difficult. I I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm not saying I offered easy solutions. Yeah, absolutely, I, I wasn't expecting you to. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the other thing to think about it is is you know this idea of normal, right? I mean, there is no normal, right? The normal is what you make of it, and clearly, as we've seen from this pandemic, right? One thing that's been written about for decades and decades, right? This is a new thing, is that pandemics really reveal something about your own society, right? They reveal that there's massive inequalities in this society that we've all known about, right? I mean, people have written about this ad nauseum since 2008 um, that we haven't addressed, right? So do we want to return back to 2011 when there are massive inequalities in society? I would argue no. Um, so what we can use, this is a moment to take action and to shape uh, a just and equitable outcome that maybe we want on the back end, right? There are ways in which we could shape how we address society, as I just gave in that off-the-cuff example about public infrastructure in terms of mass transit, right? That would be a way to do it. If, if we decide one way to stimulate the economy is to build mass transit in places that really need it, that would be one way to do it. And I suppose this is where historical dialogue could possibly contribute, is that uh, for our post-pandemic recovery plan to really lead to broader societal improvement, maybe those are some of the nuanced things that worked in the past or some, some things that didn't work in the past. And, and, you know, going back to our very beginning conversation, uh, that's something we should do, having a nuanced conversation rather than just doing those broad comparisons of saying coronavirus is going to end feudalism or into inequality, whatever. Yeah, exactly. I mean, right, what happens after the 1918 uh, influenza pandemic, right, it doesn't lead to it by any stretch of imagination, but you have the 20s, which is massive inequality, right? So there are different ways in which you can attempt to address a lot of these issues and in that sense, history can give you uh, ways to approach it, right? In some senses, we're not making up things each time, which is probably a good thing, right? We'd all be exhausted if we were constantly uh, making up new stuff. But it can give you ideas that you can then try to implement. And I think that's a really possible good way forward. Uh, you mentioned that you are on uh, Twitter and Instagram these days. What do you think of the, the cultural scripts there? Because I, was, I sent you this article, uh, an interview, uh, with Dr. Zainab Tefeki, who is a professor at uh, UNC Chapel Hill, and she was saying how uh, the media today follows those unique cultural scripts, and, and that has caused a lot of problems. And, and social media is also a form of socialization that uh, is perhaps one of the most potent forms of shaping human perceptions of, of different ideas. So I would love to hear your thoughts on what you think you're seeing today in the media and in uh, social media. Yeah, I mean, so the broader question that she put up about um, 
socialization, I think is, is basically my analysis of the structure and agency debate, right? I mean, that's what she's getting at is she's getting at the ways in which we socialize, right? Whether it's on Twitter or other forms are, are done by how we live our lives, right? And I think that's fairly accurate, although again, misses some of the nuance to an extent in terms of um, uh, how this is a broader question than before. I think she was explaining these changes in terms of people thinking about it uh, in terms of the Muslim ban, if I remember correctly. Um, right. I, I mean, just to give our listeners a quick recap, it, it, basically what she was saying is that uh, when the COVID-19 response first was released by the Trump administration and, and part of it was uh, to have a travel ban from China, the media immediately jumped in and said, uh, oh my God, that, that must be racist or, or that's horrible because they used the same cultural script they used for the Muslim travel ban, which is denouncing the ban as racist, even though the travel ban in the COVID-19 con context uh, was actually quite effective. So uh, in, in that sense, using repeated cultural scripts would cause significant harm. So there's two points with that. One, I think that the ban actually didn't do anything. Right. And the problem with that to an extent was was twofold. One, it was too late. And two, if you look at the the phylogenetic trees, which is a fancy way of saying the evolution of the actual COVID-19, most of New York City, from what I've read, uh, and I follow the Twitter account that does this, uh, is actually seeded from Europe. Right. So, I mean, a lot of the East Coast seeding of COVID-19, that's basically then become the way in which most of the rest of America has gotten this, not all of it, but a lot of it is actually from Europe, right? And we didn't do a travel ban in Europe until very late. And then it was done really badly and really poorly, um, right? I mean, they just kind of put in stricter implement implementation requirements in, say, Chicago. I remember seeing a, someone took a photo and it was just hundreds, if not thousands of people packed in a hall because they hadn't actually put in any testing. There were no temperature checks. So it doesn't matter if you do a ban, if you're letting people in who already have it, right? I mean, it's just irrelevant. Um, so in that sense, uh, that's uh, the factual problem with the ban, right? It didn't actually work and it was done too late. And most of the seating, again, was from Europe where they didn't do the ban at all. Um, the, the other thing uh, is what I would say is I don't know if it actually is a reaction to the quote unquote Muslim ban. Right. I think it's a broader, if you want to use her term of a script, um, which I'm okay using, uh, it actually comes from a broader idea as I've traced out about these emerging infectious diseases. Right. I mean, there's been people saying that H1N1 was the was gonna be what killed us all, SARS was what was gonna get us, right? I mean, this has gone back for 25 or 30 years. So in fact, it's actually not a Muslim ban script. It's it's what's called the outbreak narrative, which is um, not my term, it's it's a professor at Duke, um, and she wrote a really wonderful book on this, her name's Priscilla Wald, um, and she points out that, you know, we enact, we go through the same exact stages, certainly over the last 25, 30 years, about how this outbreak narrative plays out. And part of it is stigmatization of foreigners, um, now in this case for the last 20 years or so, it's Asians, um, and various other things, you know, great scientists heroically stopping the a pandemic from wherever it's spreading, right? I mean, that's why people go out in the streets and they applaud uh, uh, first responders, but God forbid we actually pay them well, or we give them hazard pay, or we give them a bonus, or we give them more vacation, or whatever, you know, all these things that we actually should do. No, we just or go in our balcony and bang with our hands. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's no different than, you know, we all stand at a, at a ball game to applaud military people, but we don't give them good benefits, right? I mean, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, 
so that's that's kind of again the Muslim ban thing. I think is 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 probably missing the point. Um, I think that it's it's this larger outbreak narrative that's actually driving it. Right. It's it's a deeper history than just say the last four years. It's a history of the last thirty at least. Oh, the, the the outbreak narrative is such an interesting concept. I mean, it, it, I suppose our interview has really come back to a loop and uh, come back to the initial discussion about cultural scripts. So what would be your solution for it? The, the grand remedy for our naiveness when it comes to juxtaposing those analogies that are inaccurate? In terms of the historical ones? And historical ones using cultural scripts or narratives today in our media and, and such. So, Sure. I mean, you know, this touch on what we, we discussed in the beginning. So the first thing is I think we have to look at the local effects, right? There's a there's famously a plague outbreak in the year 1900 in San Francisco, for example, right? And the local effects there are eerily reminiscent, right? You have a governor who doesn't want trade goods to not be shipped out of California. So he refuses to admit that there's actually a plague outbreak. Um, and he fires a scientist because he doesn't want uh, science driving policy. Um, so again, local local effects matter, right? Other places reacted differently locally when you have smaller other plague outbreaks across the world. So I would say that's certainly the, the first thing. Um, you know, and then the other thing is to think about, as I said earlier, is to think about what are the outcomes you want, right? So if things that you want are changes to a society that you think this pandemic has exacerbated, pointed out, made worse, which I think it absolutely has, then figure out a way of addressing that. Now, that's a political question, right? I mean, there's an uh, election in November, so that's a political question fully, and I admit that. Um, but that's really what you need to do to change these things. But it can't just be a top-down change, right? Even if you flip who's in charge of the country, that doesn't change the system in which how funds are allocated and how things are done are fundamentally not changed at all. And that's something that needs to be obviously reworked in the country. Don't you think this matter just gets so much more complicated in the presence of social media? Because for, for me, Twitter as a public forum just makes all those chaos and, and, and um, exponentially uh, more irrational uh, compared to traditional media platforms. Yes and no, right? I mean, the U.S. as a country has basically moved away from trusting experts, you know, for the last 50 years, right? I mean, this goes back quite far. I mean, I fame, I'm, really? not, I'm not an American historian, but right, I mean, I can point to the fact that, you know, you could look at the Vietnam War, right, would be the famous example. Right. I mean, JFK and LBJ had, you know, the, famously the smartest men in the room. Right. They put like the world's experts on various things uh, in charge. Right. And that didn't solve the problems that they faced. Right. It only made the Vietnam War worse. Um, and so that actually putting smart people in charge in an American context has been gone for for decades. Right. I mean, you know, how many how many uh, PhDs do you have in Congress? Right. If we're talking smart people versus how many lawyers? Right. And that's an easy comparison. How many engineers do you have? Right. How many mathematicians? How many disease modelers? Right. How many doctors who aren't just, you know, uh, in particular sub surgery fields that make a lot of money, probably. Right. I mean, there aren't just aren't that many. There isn't a diversity of thought in Congress. Right. At a, at a base level. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I'm not saying there has to be, but it, but it's reflective of society. Right. American society has decided we don't want experts in charge. Right. I mean, that's how we've we've come across. 
Um, you know, and again, this has been exacerbated after the 60s um, uh, through, again, what Dan Rogers called the age of fracture, right? There's no meaningful authority left. And so people are just arguing about these things. And so social media is in many ways just an outcome of this process. Now it drives the process and makes it worse. Um, but it's it's really just an outcome of longer historical trends, probably. You know, the the positive, I would say, you could make the argument for social media is you can get information faster, right? I mean, now it's problematic information, right? We can get into the whole whatever Twitter's doing in terms of labeling Donald Trump's tweets in the last like four days or three days or whatever, uh, inaccurate. Um, you know, we can decide whether or not that works or whatever, but that's not the point. Um, the point is, is people have access to information um, and you also have certainly accountability, right? I mean, the, the video uh, from Minneapolis, certainly pre-social media that no one even takes the video, let alone people know about it. Um, so you do have accountability that's much more there than it used to be. That's so interesting because, uh, you, as you said, it's a longer trend that we haven't been putting, you know, the quote unquote, the best, the most smartest, the... Um, the experts in charge. I, I was hearing people say these days that because of this pandemic, people actually have more trust. We have developed more trust uh, in, in experts and, you know, whether it's uh, glorifying the role of Dr. Fauci or whether, uh, you know, not trusting a lot of the, the, the fake news online. What are your thoughts on that? You don't think COVID-19 is, is helps with the turning point in terms of letting us get a better understanding of expert opinions rather than valuing this information. It's certainly possible that that will be an outcome, but now you're asking me to predict the future. And as a historian, I'm not going to do that. I mean, it, it, it's a possible outcome, um, you know, but, you know, Dr. Fauci is, is again, following the outbreak narrative ideas. He's this heroic scientist who stepped in and saved the day, right? I mean, he's this, we put so much upon him at least in the beginning, and certainly through March and April, because you'd have these daily press conferences where you had a president basically saying somewhere from factually wrong stuff to, you know, telling people to drink Clorox. <laughs> I mean, it's really not that hard to have a reasonable person. A hero. Right? I mean, and so, and you get, so then you get, you know, memes of Fauci kind of trying to stop himself from rubbing his face, right? Because he knows he's not supposed to touch his face, but he's so clearly disappointed and disgusted with what's being said that, you know, he can't help himself. Right. I mean, so, you know, that, that, whether or not that lasts, I don't know. Right. And so the question is, it's not about the best, right. It's about where do you get information that's reliable? Um, and how do you portray that to the broader public and how does the broader public consume it in a way that's, that's useful. Right. I mean, you know, there's a reason why good, online learning for this semester, and I don't know if you had any classes like this, actually, there's very good pedagogical text techniques for online learning. And, you know, the best people who've already done it or took good advice actually created some really good content, for example, um, because they, they realized that you can't sit there in a computer screen and listen to someone talk in a lecture for 45 or 50 minutes. It's just no one's going to do it, right? You're going to turn off your camera and you're going to like go on Twitter. And so you have to do snippet segments, right? Shorter segments, interactive things, you know, YouTube videos, maybe you do some video games or these kinds of things. And so you have to build in new materials. And I think that's the way, um, you know, the way to do it in that sense. There seems to be a clear message behind the context in which you are presenting your research, uh, you're doing this podcast. Uh, what impact do you really ultimately 
hope to have on whether it's United States policy or the general opinion of the American public. Uh, what impacts you hope to achieve? So the problem now me doing this podcast is, you know, when I want to frame this in 10, 15 years to my kids or anyone else, depending on where my career goes, uh, I'll have this podcast to prove me wrong um, because I'll probably come up with some apocryphal story about how I thought all this stuff from the beginning and then I came up with this grand narrative, right? This is how history works. We tell stories. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, truthfully from the beginning, um, Lee and I had been writing about this stuff, um, from writing about pandemics for the last now two years or so. Um, you know, and it started just because we read something we disagreed with. And so we wrote a first article saying, here's our position. And that's frankly where it started. Um, you know, it obviously we didn't expect nor would we want it to become a popular thing. Um, but that's obviously what's happened. And so from the beginning, we didn't have a plan as it were, right? It was just write something, see where the academic stuff takes us. You weren't predicting that there's going to be a global pandemic in another year or two that will carry this. <laughs> no, I mean, in some sense, right, that's what this emerging infectious disease narrative has said, right, that something's going to happen for the last 30 years. And, and there is reason to believe that's the case. Now, again, you could believe or disbelieve that it would have been what we're experiencing now versus, say, something more regionally limited, say, like SARS, right? I mean, that's only in a certain part of the world as opposed to COVID-19 is, is global, but or certain parts of the world, I should say, SARS was, but. But so there was no grand plan at the beginning, I'll, I'll frankly admit. Um, you know, one thing as this picked up is we realized that we had the knowledge to discuss this more publicly um, and to write a series of op-eds and those types of things. Because working in the deep past, we cover more ground than uh, often modern historians. So if you're a modern historian, you may work in, say, five or 10 year increments, as opposed to we work in decades and centuries. And so we end up reading longer historical processes in some cases. Um, so we'd done a lot on the Justinianic plague. We'd had to do a bunch on the Black Death. And, and we've been reading, frankly, about 19th and 20th century uh, narratives as well. That was where those three phases I kind of laid out for you came from. Right? That came from our reading of, of a lot more 20th century work, which is in the historical field to read in 20th century and to read earlier is, is less common, I think. Um, and so we realized that we had these stories that we knew that we could tell um, that certainly in the beginning when people hurriedly put on historians, that historians hadn't necessarily grappled with all of the questions we had, right? I mean, so they had looked at the 1918 flu pandemic and everyone kept asking, and as far as I can tell, maybe the people have changed, keep asking, why do we forget this, right? And in many ways, that's not the question, right? The question is, how did we think about disease that it became possible for us to forget it, right? And this answer is actually pretty clearly laid out in the most famous book on the 1918 influenza. Uh, so it's actually kind of funny, which is by Alfred Crosby, which was written in 1976. So, you know, we had some of these answers to some of these thought processes. So we decided, you know, why don't we do a podcast on it? We have good networks with other people who work on diseases and pandemics. Um, and so we reached out to them. Those were our first guests. Uh, and then from there, we also realized that there's obviously going to be not surprisingly, a growing interest in this, both from a um, university level to a, a you know a K through twelve level, in terms of people wanting content, right? I mean, and you can't assign the articles I sent you to read. I would never give that to you know 
a, an undergraduate seminar, probably even, let alone, you know, a, an 11th grade or a 10th grade class, right? It just, you can't do it. And so one, one way I know this is through podcasts, right? And so if you have a podcast like we have, that succinctly in, in 45 minutes or so lays out the three historical plague pandemics, that becomes a good way in which people can, you know, process information and learn stuff. It's really great. I mean, I was just, I listen to podcasts when I'm going on runs and I was listening to your episode when I was running in DC, through DC and, and, and you in your podcast talk about how you would go through DC. It's, it's just really interesting to, to see those things. Uh, yeah, I, I, you were talking about narrative, this infectious narrative. I have a really quick question for you. So uh, there's an Oxford philosopher called uh, Toby Ord, who uh, is associated with Professor Peter Singer on effective altruism, a lot of other movements. And he projects that there is a one in six chance that humanity is not going to make it in the next hundred years or this century. And he projects that there's a one in 30th chance that humanity could end up end uh, because of bioterror uh, diseases or, or, or whatever this new concocted super virus by some well-intentioned scientists that actually happened to be leaked, whatever. Um, but I would love to hear a take on that. Do, do you think that that's kind of along this train of thought that a lot of people are thinking that, oh my God, infectious diseases are keep coming and, and, and we're going to end because of this. Yeah. I mean, actually the bioterrorism thing is a, is a subfield as it were of the emerging infectious disease narrative. So I'd love to know when he started saying that. So if you go and we've done this, we've given Lee and I've given some talks as one of Lee's favorite slides and it's a very effective, good slide. I think he tracks um, on web of science, right? Which is an aggregator of of journal articles, essentially, of the sciences in particular, it does a terrible job for the humanities because it doesn't do edited volumes in most of our journals. But for the sciences, it's it's pretty solid. Um, and if you really care, I can send it to you. But he tracks emerging infectious diseases or infectious diseases, I think, as a term. And you can literally see this uptick. Uh, it, it's fairly gradual, and then it's pretty much exponential from the mid-90s. And if you do it for bioterrorism, you see the same exact thing that's slower. And then you'll never guess what year in which it just shoots off the chart. Uh, do you have a guess? Uh, no idea. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't want to sound stupid in front of my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, really hard. Right, I shouldn't put you on the spot. Uh, it's 2001, right? I mean, it's, it's 9-11 plus the anthrax, and it just goes through the roof. The Iraq war accelerates this, right? When, when supposedly, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. That was an easy guess. How did I not think of that? <laughs> no, I mean, it's not an easy, like an guess. <laughs> it's not an easy guess unless you, you're in it, right? I mean, once you start thinking about these things, the breaks in these, how these narratives work become very obvious, right? But you have to see them. Um, and then from about 2000, I forgot exactly, but the mid late 2000s, it drops down again, right? So I'd be curious to see when he started making that bioterrorism prediction. And I wouldn't be shocked to see it line up somewhere within that train of post 2001 thought at least. Right. I, I think just because there's so many examples of how even, you know, high level security labs could leak super viruses designed by well-intentioned scientists, like I think it was bird flu or something. Yeah, I, there was a good example this morning uh, where there was a lab where they're doing coronavirus testing on monkeys. The monkeys broke out. Um, no way. They have coronavirus. Oh. <laughs> or may have, I don't know if they have coronavirus, but they broke out, which is like the scene from uh, the 2002 movie, 28 Days Later, where the <laughs> virus breaks out because these monkeys have this disease. But that's all. Where is this? Uh... It was a BBC article you could probably find. I think it was Sky News or BBC, but uh, it might be. Okay, okay. 
That, that, that's really interesting. Well, we'll see. Uh, there, there are a lot of people who say this is from a, a lab in Wuhan. Who knows? <laughs> well, I mean, ultimately, I think the answer is no. And ultimately, it doesn't matter, right? I mean, this is this is the question, right? If if getting you back to the source allows you to cure the disease, then that's one thing. But that doesn't seem to be what's at the heart of the origins question, right? No one thinks you're going to find somehow a pure sample, at least I don't think they think they are, that will then immediately be able to resolve this problem. And maybe some people do, but you know, the origins question of origins of diseases is this age-old question, right? Where does the Black Death come from? Where does the plague come from? This is a question people in my field ask all the time. Um, frankly, to me, it's not an interesting question because I'm interested in human beings. So how does it affect people and what can we do to, to fix it? And you, as a historian, I suppose you you, you try to theorize the, the happenings in, throughout human history. So, uh, and you said you don't make predictions, but uh, do, do you think we're overreacting, underreacting? Um, how you know President Trump always says it's from one to ten. How would you how would you rate this uh, ten out of ten? Like what's the? <laughs> yeah, I mean, as I said, it's a, that's why there's a deep sigh there. Um, you know, it's very hard to make those, you know, overarching. It's not about overreacting or underreacting. Now, I would say we certainly underreacted to start, um, and I think we still haven't done enough, right? So, in that sense, to answer your question, yes or no, we're underreacting. That's true. But the broader question now, I think, is where have we gotten to, right? And the the answer to that seems to be clear, which is disgusting and disappointing, which is we seem to be fine that a thousand people die a day, right? And it's probably more than that because we're not logging all these cases is fine, right? I mean, that seems to be the case where we've essentially, we've gone down from a high of you know two to 3000 people dying a day. And now we're at a thousand people dying a day. And suddenly we're going to open up most states. I mean, that's, that's a massive failure um, in my mind, right? I mean, if you're admitting that a thousand people dying a day is perfectly acceptable because you don't want to provide sufficient stimulus packages to basically carry people through any longer, that seems to be a failure of the government itself, right? I mean, what was the point? As I said, what's the point of self-isolating if we haven't gotten testing up to the capacity that any scientist would tell us needs to be done to open anything up safely to prevent, you know, a second wave happening? And again, if we haven't poured money into schools to prevent those from being hotspots, if we haven't poured money into nursing homes to prevent those from being further hotspots. I mean, we haven't done anything. Well, they say wasted this, this quarantine period. Yeah, I mean, I'm not the only one to say that. I mean, we've gone into isolation. We basically drove our unemployment up to 20, at least 20%. It's probably higher than that. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's probably, you know, whatever it is. And again, it's going to differ in different places. Um, and so the debate has become, you know, I guess we're okay with a thousand people dying a day because we've done nothing to move this forward, right? I mean, at the end of the day, so in that sense, it's a failure and we're still underreacting, right? I mean, if we really cared, we would put long-term stimulus packages. Um, you know, I have some colleagues who actually work in DC on this, but you would you would peg long-term stimulus packages to unemployment rates or to some particular economic indicators that only when we reach a point where people literally aren't mass in, en masse lining up for food banks, you know, that we would stop those things, right? And that's when it could end. But we don't seem to want to do that, right? We don't want to solve the problem and we don't want to, you know, resolve the problem either. And that's kind of an issue. Are, are you cynical, optimistic, pessimistic? Are you, I mean, you study the history of pandemics and you <laughs> just... 
I mean, from a, you know, from a historical perspective, right? It, you know, the people who live, right? There will be people who will live at the other side of this pandemic. I, you know, God willing, assume this doesn't turn into something that kills every human being on the planet, um, which seems unlikely. Um, you know, people will at some point live their lives, right? I mean, there will be reactions to it and historians will make claims about this just as they do every other pandemic. So in that sense, human beings will go on. Um, but again, to me, it's a wasted opportunity if we don't use it to fix some of the things we know are wrong in this country. Well, that's a great message to, to end on, I suppose, for, for this interview. We've already had such a long conversation. I don't want to take more of your time. But at, at the end, since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, uh, what, what would be your punchline here for our audience, for your research on the crisis and, and past pandemics, for cultural scripts, for, for anything? Yeah, so now you're, uh, to, to boil it down, I, I think, you know, as I said, all pandemics are different, right? So don't use gross comparisons, right? Because how it affects different places and different classes and different genders and different races is always going to be different. Um, so don't be fooled by assuming, you know, simple comparisons and use it as an opportunity to, uh, to, to take action and to shape the world you think that you want it to be in the outcome, right? We don't need to return to what it was before. Um, and if you're in politics, then there are ways of doing that. If you're in academia, there are ways of doing that. If you're, you know, working a, a, any other job, there are ways of doing that, right? So that's what I think needs to be done, especially, you know, at this point, God willing, we've passed one phase of acute level of crisis in a lot of places. So there's ways in which people can now address some of these broader issues. Uh, would you mind quickly telling our audience a little bit more about your podcast, where they can find more about your work, uh, your podcast, other interesting readings you would refer our audience to? Sure. So you can find our podcast at infectioushistorians.com. Um, you'll have links to episodes there. Um, and you can also download it from whatever your favorite podcast subscribing site is. Um, I'm simple. I just use Apple because I can't be bothered to do anything else. <laughs> uh, and you'll have some of our workers on there. And you can also uh, visit my academia.edu page, which has a number of my articles, which I placed open there, open access. Um, and uh, if you want to know more about SACINC, um, which is the National Socio-Environmental Synthesis Center, um, it's just SACINC.org, um, which does a lot of good work at the interface of social science um, and natural sciences and the environment. And so I'd highly recommend that as well. Uh, any further readings, books? Uh, you mentioned Pr Priscilla Wald. You mentioned a couple of really interesting authors. And anybody else you would recommend us to look further look into? Something that don't just try to present one set of cultural scripts, but rather nuanced understandings of local context. Yeah, I mean, the, the famous book, if you want to know more about the 1918 pandemic, um, by Alfred Crosby, um, called uh, The Forgotten Pandemic. Not the original title from 1976, but the reissued one in 1989, um, and then reissued again in 2003, but you can find a copy of that. It's still probably the overarching book, so if you want to know more about it, there's some popular books that came out in the last decade, but that's still, I would say, the touchstone book if you want to know about um, that outbreak, um, which is something, again, that people have been talking about a lot more recently. Perfect. Thanks so much for, for joining me today, Dr. Eisenberg. Really appreciate this wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for having me on. 
Uh, and this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please visit us on policypunchline.com. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, whichever podcasting platform you may uh, prefer. You can listen to us after you listen to Infectious Historians. That's a much more professionally produced podcast than I was, I was talking to Dr. Eisenberg about this, where I'm kind of uh, ashamed by the low quality of our production at Policy Punchline. So I apologize to our listeners, but thanks so much for listening today. <laughs> You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.